series, Walking Like Ladies and Gentlemen, and the rest of us turning, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I hope you have some note paper this morning, um, because you're going to want to take these 20, 20 things down. We've preached this message before some time ago. It started out with 13 things, and then it went to like 18 things, and now it's all the way up to 20 things that provoke your children to wrath. And uh, so as soon as we get our light going here and get our projector working, we'll, uh, we'll get started on that. Read with me, if you would, please, the first four verses of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now that's kind of a positive thing, that bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a positive thing. Um, we're going to save that for tonight. This morning we're going to spend the whole time on provoking not your children to wrath. You see, it's such a thing that if we get them provoked to wrath first, all of those positive things won't matter much um, because of Adam's sinful nature in each one of us. So just to review, as we uh, talk about uh, bringing you up to the context of this verse of Scripture um, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the Christian walk in Ephesians chapter 5. In verses 1 through 7, he talks about walk in love. In verses 8 through 14, he talks about walk in light. And then in verses 15 through 21, he talks about walk in wisdom. And so there's seven verses even. It's almost like Paul wrote a poem. Uh, it's, it's almost poetic in the original language that there's seven verses devoted to each one of these thoughts. When we talk about walking in wisdom, he equates that with being filled with the Spirit. You can, it doesn't matter how worldly wise you are, if you're not filled with the Spirit, you're always going to be playing short, short-circuited or short-staffed. You're, you're not going to have the strength, you're not going to have the wisdom that you could have if you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can be a very wise person, not filled with the Holy Spirit, and you'll just be average. But if you're a very wise person filled with the Holy Spirit, you will shine, and uh, God will bless you in a mighty way. Uh, the evidences of speaking, or pardon me, of being filled with the Spirit are speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is literally Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through about 21. Giving thanks always for all things unto God, and submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Could I tell you this? These are kind of summed up in three words. The first one, those first two, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is kind of parallel with singing to yourselves, or singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Those are almost the same thing. So could we say joy? Don't tell me you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you don't have joy. Don't tell me. I'm not... You can't, you're not going to sell that here. I'm not going to buy it. If you don't have genuine joy, then you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. The second thing is a grateful spirit. You don't have a grateful spirit, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there will always be that spirit of gratitude. 
And then finally, here's, here's the easy way to sum up the last one. It says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Could we just say getting along with others? <laughs> if you are a person that has trouble getting along with people, don't tell me you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Being filled with the Holy Spirit understands the value of cooperation with others. I, I'm not talking about compromising convictions. I'm not talking about compromising standards. I'm not talking about getting in, but you'll get along. Okay? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Although there was that one time, I was thinking about this one time when Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they stoned him anyway. And so maybe you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and get stoned, if you're lucky. Um, Anyway, walk in wisdom. Now, uh, and he goes ahead and he talks about these spirit-filled relationships. In verses 22 through 33 of chapter 5, he talks about husbands and wives. The implication here is, since he's just finished talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, is that no matter how good of a marriage you have, you'll have a better marriage if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's always going to be true. Okay, It should be a spirit-filled relationship. Then in verses Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which we just read, you're going to have a better relationship between children and parents if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's kind of a common sense thing. It's a self-evident truth. And then finally, he talks with, with, about slaves and masters in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. And uh, you know what? You're going to have a better relationship with people at work if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a boss, you're going to be a better boss. If you're an employee, you're going to have a better employee uh, or be a better employee if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So children are commanded to, and this is going to that counsel to children and parents that is given in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children are commanded to do two things, obey and honor. And they're not the same thing. We talked about that about three Sundays ago. Obedience is one thing. Honor is understanding, respect, and the value of a good parent. And uh, they're different. You can obey without honoring, but you cannot honor without obeying. Um, And then parents are commanded to do two things. They're commanded to provoke not to wrath, and they're commanded to bring up. Now, let me say this about uh, provoking to wrath. Um, You might not provoke a five-year-old to wrath. He's just going to be frustrated. You know, if you're an inconsistent parent, if you're a thoughtless parent, if you're kind of a clueless parent, you're not going to provoke them to, to, I mean, wrath and anger uh, or gay. You're not going to provoke them to that at maybe ages 5, 6, 7. But by the time they're 18, you continue those practices, you will actually drive that young person to hate dad and mom. You can actually push it that far if you do these things that we're going to talk about this morning provoking not your children to wrath. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We'll talk about that this evening. Um, there's the nurture. By the way, it's the same word as is used for a woman breastfeeding. That's the word ektrefo. It's the same thing. Uh, and then admonition of the Lord, which includes not only the positive side of teaching, but the negative side of discipline. Um, so, here's the verse. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's our whole thought for today. So let's interpret the verse. Before we give you the list of 20 things, let's interpret the verse. Provoke not and wrath are one word in the Greek. (laughs) I'm not sure I can say it. Perorgizo. It means to anger alongside. 
It means to enrage. It means to anger. It means to provoke to wrath. That's the Greek definition of it. Paul deals with this before he deals with nurture and admonition because, uh, notice this, he does this, he talks about provoking not to wrath before he talks about bring them up. Why does he do that? Because bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is hard enough in Adam's sinful race. Why? Because every boy and girl is a sinner. Every boy and girl, even the saved ones, have the, the, they're, they're tarnished with the flesh. They have the principle of the flesh, the principle of sin, the principle of Adam's sin still in them. It's hard enough when everything's going right to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord without provoking them to anger before you begin. And dads and moms do some things, unfortunately, that would get on God's nerves. Um, I'm saying if, if God was your child, it would irritate him. The things we're going to talk about this morning are serious things. And uh, there's a list of 20. It started out with 13 because I didn't see the whole picture. And then through the years, I've watched, I've observed, I pay attention. And uh, now I learned some of these 20 things because I do them myself. And I've caught myself doing them. I've caught myself provoking my own children to wrath by doing these things. Others, I have learned the hard way by watching others make these mistakes and, uh, and, and angering their children, bringing them to wrath before they ever got started. So, what provokes children to wrath? Well, the very first thing is, is that they feel unimportant in the big picture. Uh, now, let me say this. Family is always first. I believe in the local church, but I'm going to tell you, 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 you're coming to church is secondary to having your family right with God. You need to have your family right with God. Um, and uh, so family is first. And I understand there's a place for church. I understand there's a place for work. You can't live without a job. You've got to have money. That's where you, 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 you get money by having a job. Maybe it's business, but there's always the economic aspect of life. There's always things to maintain. You've got to fix the car. You've got to fix the house. You've got a leaking faucet. You've got a, a leaking roof. Um, there's things that have to be done. I understand that. Um, but uh, in the overall scheme, a lot of times kids don't feel very important in that big picture. And by the way, I'll say this, they should not be the center of attention. It's a bad thing when you let the child become the center of attention. There needs to be a balance here um, between the, the, the individual and the whole, the overall good of the whole. There needs to be a balanced approach. You can see this sometimes if you're wondering, well, I wonder how well I balance it. Well, then think about the depth of the conversations that you have with your kids. A lot of times the depth of the conversation is, uh, this is on dad and mom's part. You know, did you clean your room? Did you, did you put the, take the trash to the dumpster? Did you feed the dog? Did you put your dirty clothes in the hamper? Did you do that other thing that I told you? Okay, and then it's like you're dismissed. You can go play. If the depth of your conversation is always, did you get that done? Did you do this? Did you do this? Is your homework done? Uh, and that's all you ever talk about. Your depth is pretty shallow. You need to be asking questions like, what did you think about that? You know? We read, we read that, 
that story the other evening. What did you think about that story, Red? What did you think about little britches anyway? What did you think about such and such? Or we went, we, we used to go to a revival meeting and uh, we'd come back and we'd talk in the car. What did you think of the message? Now, I was always told in Bible college by the preacher that did most of the preaching, don't never criticize the preaching. And, uh, well, it didn't take me many years to learn that's because the preacher that did the preaching didn't want to be criticized. Don't never criticize the preaching. But uh, then one day I figured out my kids have got to learn how to listen to preaching. They've got to learn what's good preaching and what's not good preaching. Did you know there is such a thing as not good preaching? There's such a thing, as a matter of fact, as bad preaching. There's such a thing as poisonous preaching. Just because it's preaching doesn't mean it ought to be listened to. Uh, You say, well, it came forth from the Word of God and it came forth from the Bible. It's got to be good, right? Listen, we need to be thinking people. And you need to be talking to your kids. You need to understand. We, We went to a youth conference one time down in Columbia, might have been Jeff City, and, and one of the young people, we, we hadn't driven five miles from the church, and one of the young people, I was driving, it was on a Saturday afternoon, the, the youth rally was over, and we were on our way home, and, and uh, I always looked forward to getting home so I could get my mind back on, uh, back on the uh, preparation for Sunday, but I also valued the time with those teenagers, and one of the, one of the young people hollered up, Preacher, what did you think of that preaching today? I'm driving the van. <laughs> I said, well, you got to understand, the guy was about 22. And uh, he, he, he used the phrase, I'm sick and tired of this and that. He used that about 30 times in the sermon. I'm sick and tired of these people that do this. I'm sick and tired of young people that do this. I'm sick and tired of... And in uh, <clears throat> one of the statements, he said, I'm sick and tired of a bunch of youth... Young people showing up at activities like this dressed like whores and harlots. I'm sick and tired of it. And this person that asked me this was a girl. She said, what do you think of that preaching today? And I said, well, I agreed with a lot of what he said, but I didn't agree much with the way he said it. He's not my kind of preacher. I said, first of all, he hadn't lived long enough to be sick and tired of anything. And I mean, that was a phrase that everybody there knew exactly what I was talking about because I'm sick and tired of this and I'm sick and tired of that and I'm sick and tired of this and I'm sick and tired of that. I was sick and tired of hearing him say he was sick and tired. (laughs) And you know what? The depth of your conversation is going to reveal whether that young person is really part of the big picture or not. And I'm telling you, if you young people don't feel like they're part of the big picture, like you're if they don't feel like they're important in your life, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if they don't understand that I matter to dad and mom. And I don't just matter when it's time to show up at church on Sunday morning. I matter to them through the week. I matter to them every day. Dad and mom care about me. So that's number one. Here's the second thing, unreasonable demands. And I say this because some demands are just flat unreasonable. And I'm telling you as the pastor, if I were there and I heard you make some of the demands that I hear parents sometimes make, I would have to say if that young person asked me 
Was that a reasonable demand? I would have to say, in my opinion, no, it wasn't. I'm going to tell you, dads and moms, a lot of times our demands that we make of our kids are random choices, personal whims, personal dislikes, and most of all, selfish inconveniences. I just didn't want to be inconvenienced with this, so you do it. I don't want to do it, so you will. And I can make you do it because I can. I'm dad, or I'm mom, and you're going to have to do it. I want you to understand, dads and moms, there should be common sense to the things that we ask our young people to do. And we shouldn't ask them to do anything that I have not done myself and am not willing to do myself. Um, There should be a useful purpose. You know what? Most young people are pretty cooperative if they can see a useful purpose in what I'm being asked to do. I go back to that story. I can think of my dad telling the story about his military service where a guy threw a a cigarette butt on the parade ground and some sergeant walked up and he had just enough brass to make him do it. He had just enough authority to order this. He said, sir, you go dig a grave six foot deep, three foot wide, uh, six feet long. You dig a grave and bury that cigarette butt. And so don't you think that there's stuff like that as a little bit of an overkill? Sometimes. Sometimes we embitter the child with an overkill. Now, there's balance to this. Sometimes we're way too lenient and let them off way too easy. But, but unreasonable demands are just almost guaranteed to make them frustrated when they're 10, and maybe by the time they're 20, they'll be bitter. Here's the next thing, unreasonable expectations. By the way, I'm not giving you all of the in-between material on the screen I'm putting this up here only so you can write it down. And that way 20 people don't come after the service and say, what was point number 13 again? I didn't get that. So putting them on the screen will help you to have it just a little bit longer. Unrealistic expectations. What I mean by that? I mean by expecting adolescent behavior out of a toddler or expecting teen behavior out of an adolescent or adult behavior out of a teenager. Really, it would be more realistic to expect adolescent behavior out of a teenager (laughs) than the other way around. It would be really more realistic. Um, But, you know, at least, should I expect a teenager to act like a teenager? Yes, I should. But they're not an adult. And they're not going to think like one yet, and they don't bear the responsibility of one yet. And I'm, I'm a little out there if I'm wishing for that kind of behavior that's beyond their years of growth. And especially when you take an adolescent and try to make him be a teenager. Uh, I could tell you stories here and comment on some things, but I don't have the time to do that. If I spend uh, three minutes on each one of these things, that's 60 minutes, so we're not going to do that. Unclear instructions. Uh, Children process things one thing at a time. Go clean your room. Might be fine to a 16-year-old because they should know what that means. But to a six-year-old, That is an utterly uh, abstract instruction. Go clean your room at six. They don't understand everything that that entails. They need a step-by-step instruction. You need to say, first of all, go make your bed. And then when you finish making your bed, come back and tell me. Okay, go make your bed and then come back and tell me. Okay, I made my bed, Dad. I made my bed, Mom. What do I do next? Okay, go pick up your dirty clothes and put them in the laundry. Okay, 
Um, and, and then come back and tell me when you're finished. When you've done that, one step at a time. Uh, did you put your trash away? Put the trash away. Okay, now attack your toys. Go put all your toys back in the box. Um, and one thing at a time, and you'll do much better. But a lot of you say, I told them to go clean their room. To a six- or eight-year-old, that's not real clear instructions unless you have made it clear to them already. The next thing is unfavorable comparisons. Why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? Do you not understand that really what you're doing is making that child feel like you are partial to this one that you have just used as a standard of comparison? When you say, why can't you be like them? You're saying they're better than you are and you don't measure up. And so, therefore, I'm partial to them. That's the interpretation that gets across to the child. And listen, that will not only embitter the child against you, but against that brother or sister to whom you compared them. They will not like them either. Uh, Remember the incident that happened with Jacob and Esau? How Jacob's mama preferred him, but Jacob's dad preferred him. And what was the difference? Was it their character? Was it their love of God? No, Esau uh, or or, uh, Isaac liked Esau because he was a good hunter and made good stew. Now, that's just a pretty dumb reason to have one child favored over the other. And and Rebekah was, was, she was partial to Jacob because she had had a a visit with an angel that said that it was going to be that way, that Jacob was the more spiritual. But I don't know that Jacob was the more spiritual at that time. As a matter of fact, He was pretty sneaky. Neither one of them had a good reason for having a partial child, but out of the twins, they both had partial children. And then later, Jacob didn't learn a a thing because later he preferred Joseph over all the other 11. You remember, he made Joseph the oldest child. He was the oldest child of his favorite wife. (laughs) Partiality. And, uh, And that's a problem, unfavorable comparisons. Number six, Unequal penalties, and I mean by that the penalty that doesn't match the crime. Um, Again, this is overkill. Usually I'm talking about punishment that exceeds the crime. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. In this day and age, a lot of times I don't think the punishment measures up to the crime. I'm a more older conservative parent where kids didn't do what they do today and get away with it, and I would be more for giving stiffer penalties Uh, but still not penalties that exceed the crime. Um, But your punishment needs to match the crime, and therefore you need a constitutional form of government in your home. You need to write down the things. This is against the rules. This is against the rules. If there's five things, listen, more is not always more. Sometimes less is more. It would be better to have three rules and live by them than to have ten rules and not keep any of them. But with the rule, there needs to be written down, with that infraction, this penalty will always be exacted. This is the penalty. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you get caught in a lie, you're going to get spanked. Always. It's always going to be that way. And uh, write it down. Put it on the wall. I don't mean write on the wall. I mean put it on a sign, hang the sign on the wall. But, But write it on the wall. Unequal penalties will embitter children. Inconsistent behavior is the next thing. Sudden, unaccountable changes in mood or behavior. In short, being unpredictable. 
Who knows how dad's going to act? I can just see dad blowing up. Well, then he finds out and dad doesn't do anything. And the child is confused. I, I thought dad was going to blow sky high. And, and he didn't. So maybe I can do it again. Maybe it's not that bad. <laughs> and then the next time dad blows sky high. Or, or he blows sky high over something that's less grievous than the other thing. I, I, don't, I don't ever know what to expect. Who knows? It just depends on what kind of mood he's in. Excessive discipline or excessive lenience. We seem to lean one way or the other. Parents usually are too much. It's really hard to get the right balance. Do you ever notice that, dads and moms? It's hard to be balanced. But you must ever battle for balance in your child rearing. Um, can I caution you about this? I advise you never to use work as a penalty. I would never say, if you do that again, you're going to have to clean the garage. Or if you do that, you're going to have to wash the car. You just taught the child that work is a punishment. No, I would rather hear you say, if you do that again, I'm not going to let you help me clean the garage. We were going to clean the garage together, but you're going to sit on a chair and watch the rest of us do it. And you're not going to be included. That's a, that's a lot wiser in the long run because you're teaching them that, you know what, work is a reward. Can I tell you, if you're able to do work, you ought to get on your face and thank God every day. I go to the nursing home three times a week to visit my mother and there's people there that cannot stand up without help. You can get up out of your chair and you can make your own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You ought to thank God every day you can get up and go to work. What's the alternative? You could be fast of your back in bed. You could have a stroke and not able to ever once again feed yourself. I'm telling you, this life is unpredictable. And uh, we need to understand that. So did I go to inconsistent behavior? I did. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to keep my clicks up with my talking and keep my talking even with the clicks. Um, so sudden unaccountable changes in mood and behavior, being unpredictable, moving from excessive discipline to, to excessive lenience, or between circumstances and children changing. You know, one child does this and dad blows sky high. Another child does it and dad laughs. So will the real dad please stand up? That's where the kids can't figure it out. Well, it goes back to the favorite thing. He must like him better than me because he laughed when he did it. Reminds me, Brother Kenny, that somebody was telling me that they were at, a, at an activity years ago when Kenny Thomas and Vernon Crable were boys. Young men. They were young married men. And they went on a hayride. And they throwed straw at each other on the hayride. Stood up and throwed straw at each other on the hayride. And this other person who was a teenager then came to realize that that's acceptable behavior. So the following week when the teenagers went on their hayride, they stood up and threw straw and hay because they had seen Kenny and Vern do it and, and believed it was acceptable behavior. <laughs> and he said, you know what? We were rebuked. <laughs> I'm laughing at Kenny and Vern. Can you, you guys would love to have enough strength to just stand up on a hay wagon anymore, amen? Boy, wouldn't it be good to just grab a handful of straw and throw it? That would be fun. 
But anyway, inconsistent behavior. Can I tell you this? Parents who are one way at home and another way in public send a mixed signal to their kids. We need so much for our boys and girls to see the same dad at home as they see at church and to see the same mom at home that they see at church. Parents need to be predictable. They need to be the same in private and public. And parents need to practice what they preach. Parents who preach one thing at one place and do something else when it's up to them, that sends a terrible mixed signal. Jesus warned the disciples about the scribes and Pharisees. As a matter of fact, he called them hypocrites. And in Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 through 5, Jesus gave us two distinct evidences of hypocrisy. Here's what he said. Listen to these. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they do have authority. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do you not after their works? In other words, they have the authority to tell you to do certain things, and you know what? By rights you have to do it, but don't be like them. Here's why. For number one, they say and do not. And number two, they do all their works for to be seen by men. Those are the marks of a hypocrite every time. And dads and moms, when your boys and girls see you saying one thing and doing something else, that's, they mark you as a hypocrite. And you know what? They're not mistaken. They're not mistaken. And when they see you doing things to be seen of men that you won't do when men are not watching, They'll mark that as hypocrisy every time. So let's not provoke our children to wrath. Here's number eight. Number eight is excessive criticism. There is productive instruction. You know, son, the next time you wash the car, it'd be better if you used a sponge and not a wash rag out of the bathroom. That really upsets your mother when you wash the car with a washcloth, a white washcloth. And then you put it in the wash with other things after you'd cleaned the tar off of the car with it. You really aggravated your mother. There is productive instruction. Son, let me show you how to do this so that next time you do it correctly. Um, But then there's counterproductive belittling. How do you know if you're instructing or belittling? Well, I would ask you, is it balanced with praise? Is your criticism balanced with praise? Children need to be praised. And I used to, I used to say this. It's been a long time since I've had little kids in my home, so understand it's kind of a vague memory now. <laughs> but I used to say about my kids, I praise them and praise them and praise them until they get cocky and then I knock their feet out from under them. I'll praise them and praise them and praise them until they get proud and then it's my place as a dad to put them in their place and to bring them down. But let me tell you, children need praise. They need to know they're appreciated. They need to know that they're important. They need to know that you recognize their attempts to do well. And you need to praise that. And you need to give positive instruction. But there is such a thing as excessive criticism. Here's the next thing, discourteous speech. 
speaking in rough, violent, disrespectful tones. Can I tell you, words strike as hard as fists. And the bad thing about it is that it betrays an attitude in you, dad and mother. It betrays an attitude in the parent. When you speak discourteously to your children, it betrays something in you that's ugly and that has not been fixed by the Holy Spirit of God yet. In other words, like they said about, about Peter, thy speech betrayeth thee. Now, in that case, it simply meant that they knew that Peter was a Galilean because his accent gave him away. But can I tell you, your speech betrays you. When you say ugly things to people, it just lets us know that you've got an ugly streak inside that needs to be fixed. And along with that is, is insulting speech. Discourteous speech, insulting speech. What do I mean by that? I mean name-calling. Painful wounds to self-image and to self-dignity. Uh, calling a child dummy or stupid. Um, I'm just telling you there's no need for that. No need at all. There, listen, it, you know what it shows? It shows your lack of vocabulary. There are plenty of good words to describe an action without having to call somebody a name like dummy or stupid or some other name. Name calling is not a good thing when found in a parent. Um, you know, dads and moms, every day you're building up the self-image of your children. We hear a lot of talk about self-image today in this society, and people say, well, that... That child, the reason they slut themselves out is because they have a poor self-image. Well, where did they get the self-image? They got, a lot of times got the self-image because that's what dad and mom made them believe about themselves. And uh, so, let me tell you what the proper self-image ought to be for each one of us. It, out of Christ, out of Christ, I am a no good for nothing, a lost sinner outside of Christ. Inside of Christ, I am a forgiven, saved child of the King. My self-image ought to range somewhere between there. But don't beat me down by calling me names. And then there's this, jesting about defects as if the child wasn't already keenly sensitive about these defects, like big ears. Get over here, big ears. I had the biggest ears when I was a kid. I'd stand up on a chair. I had to stand up on a chair to look in the mirror because Dad had the mirror fixed where he could shave. That doesn't do a seven-year-old a lot of good. you know. So I'd have to pull a chair over from the kitchen table to stand on the mirror because the getting ready place was right next to the kitchen table because we lived in a three-room house. But I'd pull a chair over and look up and I'd look and my ears looked like, I looked like a taxi cab going down the street with both doors open. And, and I'd look, I tried, I tried taping my ears back and the tape would never stick. I thought my ears were so big, but I'm going to tell you, I never once heard my dad or my mom ever tease me about my big ears. They would say, when I'd say my ears are too big, they'd say, God just gave you big ears so you could listen to his word. They didn't deny it. They just said there's a good reason for it. God made you, and you know what? That became good enough. Um, 
ugly. You know, <laughs> some parent tells some kid, you're so ugly you'd make a train, take a dirt road. And, uh, well, maybe the child is not comely. Maybe the child is not handsome. <laughs> but dad and mom, um, listen, God made them the way he wanted them to be. We have to believe this because this is what the Bible teaches. God took reproductive material from the father and reproductive material from the mother. And in the womb, deep in the heart of the earth, God made a new person. He mixed and matched genes and chromosomes, and that individual is created just as individually as Adam was in the garden. And listen, your children, need to ha they'll have to have that rehearsed over and over because you know what? No kid thinks they're pretty. A poll was taken among people, and I'm talking people like Hollywood movie stars. If you had the power to change anything about yourself, would you use it? And in every case, they said, yes. If I had the power to change anything, yes. So then they were asked the second question, if you could change anything about yourself, what would it be? And like 98% said, my looks. Nobody thinks they look pretty. No guy thinks he looks handsome. If he does, he's just not been educated well. You know, there's no handsome guy because there's, there's no standard of handsomeness. We Usually when we say somebody's handsome or somebody's beautiful, we're compared to a Hollywood movie star. But who says those people are beautiful? You know, I've seen their behavior, and some of them's ugly clean to the bone. No, we need to, not just about defects. Uh, as a matter of fact, we need to help young people learn to accept them. Uh, number 12, reiterating faults and failures. It's just never over, is it? <laughs> there you go again. Now, when Ronald Reagan said that to Jimmy Carter, it was the truth. Jimmy Carter was falsely accusing Ronald Reagan again. <laughs> I listened to the debate, and more than one time, and Ronald Reagan said, there you go again. And, and the whole world laughed because everybody knew it was true. He just couldn't let something die. But you know what? That's not an admirable trait when parents are dealing with transgressions of their children. You know what? Once the, once the crime has been committed and the penalty has been paid, forget it and move on. Don't keep digging that up again and, and pulling it out again. It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. You know, presto, I, I can pull this out and make you look dumb all over again. I can pull this out and make you look bad again. I can pull this out and make you feel guilty all over again. Can I tell you, moms and dads, raising kids with the motive of guilt is manipulation. You need to learn to apply the principles of grace in upbringing your children. Making them feel bad all the time is not helpful. Learning, teaching them how to learn to be forgiven and how to learn to overcome, that's helpful. Continually bringing up their faults and their mistakes and their failures of yesteryear is not helpful. Next thing, public re rebuke about private failure. This is also seen as the betraying of a confidence. You know, Dad, Mom, I did that thing. That was between us. 
And here you're telling Mr. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so. That was, I did it. I, 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 I admit, I confess, I did it. But, but that was in our family. That was in our home. Now you just, you just shared that with other people outside our home. Uh, listen, let me tell you, young people, or dads and moms, it gets even worse when you're the pastor of a church. Often I've told things about my kids as an illustration. I later looked back and said, I wished I'd just kept my mouth shut. The Holy Spirit would convict me later. And I've said to the Holy Spirit, why couldn't you help me thought of that earlier before I went and did it? Maybe you could have nudged me earlier before I used that illustration, but preaching, using things as an illustration of, of mistakes and failures about their kids, especially things that are unknown to the congregation, oh, it's just bad. But listen, it's no different with any dad when you tell what your kids have done. You, you need to be careful about that. The next thing is criticizing pursuits. I've got to hurry here. I'm getting near the end, but I'm not there yet. This is number 14. Hobbies, athletics, arts, interests that do not meet the parents' approval. Often parents try to relive their lives, their failed lives, what they perceive to be failed lives. They try to relive them through their children by putting them in activities that they approve of and that the kids may find useless and pointless. And so when the children then find an activity that they truly enjoy, and, and dad doesn't see the point of it, or mom doesn't see the point of it, then to criticize those pursuits is not a good thing. Scorning friends, that's the next thing. That's number 15. Excessive companionship with peers signals failed relationships at home. Let me read that again. Excessive companionship with peers, that would be at church or at school or in the neighborhood, wherever it is that you live, excessive companionship with children their age signals a failed relationship at home. Now get this, children's friends mirror who they see themselves to be. So when you point out that friend and say, I don't know why you hang around that piece of trash. I don't know why you hang around that guy. He's nothing but a... The reason that your child finds that person attractive to them is because that's the way they see themselves. I've seen it for years at camp. Kids get off of a van, and I'm telling you, with, within 15 minutes, all the rebels are huddled together, and they didn't even know each other. But they found each other, found each other in a hurry. Body language gives it away, I guess. But all the rebels find each other, all the spiritual kids find each other, and all the guys looking for girls and all the girls looking for guys, they find each other. And, and it takes about 15 minutes. But their friends mirror who they see themselves to be. So when you criticize their friends, you're really criticizing them. And guess who helped them to see themselves that way? Guess who it was that helped paint that self-image that they see in that friend that you consider not a good friend? Who do you think helped them to see themselves to be that way? I'm saying nobody's hands are clean here. When dads and moms fail to help their kids have the correct self-image, they're going to choose bad friends. It's just the way the game is played. And we need to understand that scorning their friends embitters children. 
Next, repeating confidences. I won't spend a lot of time there, but when your child tells you a secret uh, and you repeat it, they just see themselves now as you don't consider them to be important. And, uh, you know, maybe they confided in you a crush that they have on another young person. You know, this boy says, Dad, don't tell anybody, but I like so-and-so, so you just can't wait to tell it. So you tell, you tell the world. Well, it seems to that young person like you told the world. You, maybe you only told one person, but if you tell anybody, you've broken a confidence. Here's another one. Interfering with plans, needlessly. Imposing fruitless sacrifices. There's no real reason I'm keeping you from doing this but I'm keeping you from doing it because I can. I'm dead. I'm keeping you from doing it. And it's kind of like choosing to be a killjoy. I wonder about that person if they maybe had a bad childhood so they want their kids to have a bad one too. I didn't get to do those things when I was a young person, so you're not going to do those things either. Here's the next thing. Breaking promises. I'm hurrying through these last few because we're about out of time. Breaking promises, the scripture says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. When you break a promise to a child, and that's whether it's an an intentional broken promise or something really legitimately came up. You know, maybe you made a promise, we'll go fishing this weekend, and then the weekend came and you had to work overtime, we can't go. Okay, that's understandable, but sometimes you just changed your mind. That's really not understandable. That child will begin to see himself as unimportant and he'll begin to see you as untruthful. And your promises won't amount to anything in his mind. And then here's number 19, compensating for failure and guilt with material things. Okay, dad sees, okay, I hurt Junior because I didn't keep the promise, so I'll tell you what, I'll buy you this, I'll buy you one of those. You can never make up for a broken promise by buying anything. But let me tell you, if you do what's going to happen, you're going to turn your child into a materialist. They're going to begin to love things when, in fact, they really didn't want things in the first place. They wanted you. They wanted you. They wanted time with you. They didn't want the scooter or the tennis shoes or whatever it is that you salved your conscience with. They didn't really want that in the first place. They wanted you. But you'll turn them into a materialist, and then, and then they'll finally come to this point of view that you're worth what I can get out of you. They'll see dad and mom as their value is what I can get out of them. And here's the last one, an unhappy marriage. I'm afraid there's more unhappy marriages than we know about because a lot of people have put on a good show for many, many years, but you know what? There's no show at home. When there's not a happy marriage, every kid in the house knows it. They may not understand why, but they know dad and mom aren't happy. They may not understand why they're not happy, but they know they're not happy. They can smell that a mile away. Uh, An unsubmissive wife... And by submission, I'm referring to Ephesians chapter 5, where reverence is the King James word, but the idea is really respect. And listen, nine out of ten guys would... A poll was taken. I 
I'm not going to cite the poll because I don't know the name of the poll, but I don't know the book in which I read it. But a poll was taken um, between, uh, uh, among men. And if you had to choose between a wife who loved you or a wife res- who respected you, which would you rather have? And by an overwhelming majority, guys said, I'd rather re- be respected than loved. Because ladies, get this. When you love a guy, you tend to more like mother him. And it doesn't take much mothering before you add an S to the front of it, and it's more like smother him. No guy wants to be smothered. Um, But he wants to be taken seriously. And he wants you to appreciate what he does to put food in your mouth, clothes in your back, a roof over your head, to give you a decent name. He wants to be respected. And, and Paul tells us this. So a submissive wife is one who respects her husband, and an unloving husband is one who uses his wife to love himself. I'm cut through a long chase there, but I've preached on agape a lot of times. Agape is, we've used the illustration of the light of the moon. There is no such thing as the light of the moon. The light of the moon is actually the sun's light reflected off of the moon. And that's the way agape love is. I have no agape love in my human heart. All the love that I'm capable of, I'm sorry, is phileo love, affection. Um, But if I'm to have agape love, I've got to get that from the Holy Spirit of God. But when that isn't there, when a husband doesn't love his wife with agape love, and the wife is not respectful of her husband and doesn't reverence him with her submission... It equals an unhappy home. And you know what? That provokes children to wrath. Home is the laboratory where the next generation of husbands and wives are produced. We do not realize it, but every day that we live in our home, we are teaching our children how to carry on the next generation of husband and wifing. And I'll close with this. Push the wrong button, sorry. Close with this. What boys and girls, I'm going back to the whole list of 20 things now. What boys and girls believe about you is eventually what they will believe about God. If they believe that you're good and godly and that you love the Lord and they can trust you, they will trust God. If they distrust you, they will eventually, when they get the room, the space, the ability, they will eventually distrust God. But it all goes back to what do they think of dad and mom? Listen, you and I as dads and moms stand in God's place. We're God's representative in the home as authority Dads and moms are God's representative. And what they think about dad and mom, they will one day come to think about the Lord. So we'll close.